This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Yuseem, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change. I work with the McNulty Leadership Program, and my friend and colleague Ann Greenhall joins us today. She is the Deputy Director of the, of the McNulty Program. I want to remind everybody, of course, that episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Mark that down, everybody on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. So today, I just want to quickly introduce our guest and get our conversation going. Uh, General McChrystal, great to have you on our program here. Come on, Mike, we're old friends. Call me Stan. All right. I was about to shift over to Stan. So Stan, it's great to have you here. Let me uh, offer our listeners a couple thoughts on, on your background. Many people know of you. You've probably met a good number of them in one place or another as well. But uh, Stan, of course, you are a retired four-star Army general. Uh, You have a new book out, which uh, (laughs) brought you to our attention again. By the way, this is your third time on our program. Uh, The new book is called Simply Risk a User's Guide. And uh, just a couple more thoughts about you, Stan, and we're going to get right into it. You stepped down from your uniform back in July 2010. The last assignment you had, of course, was a commander of International Security Assistance Force and commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Uh, you had a, a long and distinguished career, and currently you're a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and co-founder of the McChrystal Group. So there it is, Dan. Really great to have you back. Well, thanks so much. It's an honor. And let me begin by reference to the book, the new book, Risk, A User's Guide. Uh, I've read a good bit of it now. It is really interesting. And maybe just to get us going on that, um, help us understand why you wrote the book now. Lots of risks are out there. We need some help on that. And so what motivated you to write write about that topic now? Yeah, Mike, as as your listeners will notice, it's a pretty ambitious title, Risk, A User's Guide. And our idea is that we're all users of risk, whether we want to be or not. And wanted to write this book because after a lifetime of being in the military and now more than a decade in the private sector, I came to the conclusion I had never really dealt with risk very well. I had been taught processes and matrices and and formulas, but most of the time, the decisions that I was involved in making or watching were pretty subjective. And the communication wasn't very good. And quite often, we just didn't do very well with risk. And so I want to understand why. And so decided to to delve into this. And my co-author and I, a a young lady, uh, recent Vanderbilt grad, and I, we wanted to have diversity, different ages, different backgrounds, perspectives on this just decided to try to put our arms and our minds around how might we look at risk in a way that's approachable for readers. It's not a a deeply academic book, as you know. It's not a lot of probability statistics. It's how should you think about risk and what can you do about it? Great. 
Uh, and uh, let me just uh, add, uh, Stan, that the co-author Anne Patrico uh, is not with us today, but she is a co-author with you. Uh, glad you brought that into our conversation. And Stan, maybe just to engage our, our listeners with one of your accounts, you have the book is filled with accounts that bring to life the ideas about risk, its management, how to lead through it. And could you just take one of those examples and just flesh it out for us with the implications added as well? Absolutely. I'll start with something that impacted my entire career, but I wasn't even on the operation. And it was the Iran rescue mission that took place in the spring of 1980. For people to understand, in November 1979, Iranian students stormed the American embassy in Tehran. And this was some months after the arrival or rearrival of Ayatollah Khomeini had established the Iranian revolutionary government, very opposed to the United States. So I can remember, like it was yesterday, the films of students climbing over the wall and bringing out American official Americans in blindfolds as hostages. And it began a hostage crisis, which ultimately lasted 444 days. I was a young Green Beret, Special Forces First Lieutenant, and we watched this with this frustration. Remember the 1970s were a tough decade for the United States. Vietnam had ended in 1975. We were going through difficult economic period. President Carter's in the last year of what became his, his only uh, term in office. And of course, we also remember it was a tragic decade fashion-wise. So if, if you're keeping any of that stuff, you probably ought to let it go. <laughs> President Carter was in a very difficult position. He wanted to solve it diplomatically, naturally, get Americans back. But he also knew that if he didn't get them back before the election, his chances of being reelected were probably zero. And this is when the television program Nightline began. And in the corner of the screen every night, day 23, day 24, day 25, was like this hammering. And so the president works with his diplomats to try to get a solution, and they can't. So after a period of time, he tells the military to plan a rescue attempt, and then he would make a decision later. So they, they put together a force, and this is now early 1980, and American special operating forces had been torn apart after the Vietnam War. So it wasn't a robust community, but it wasn't extremely cohesive. And so, but they, they brought together an ad hoc group and they started planning a, a potential rescue operation. Now, if you think about the magnitude of the task, you've got to bring out 53 Americans from the center of the capital of a country that's completely denied to us. And that the American embassy was 27 acres in size. So not only do you have to get to the embassy, you've got to find these 53 people in the embassy, and then you've got to get them out. So a plan was put together that was understandably complicated. It involves taking fixed and rotary wing aircraft, flying at night under Iranian radar, deep into Iran, and then landing at a piece of deserted desert, which was called <laughs> Desert One for the purposes of the operation. The helicopters had to fly empty because of fuel limitations. So the fixed wing aircraft carried the commandos and additional fuel. So the idea was you land at night under first generation night vision goggles, which is challenging. 
Then you, the commandos get out of the fixed-wing aircraft into the rotary wing. You refuel the rotary wing aircraft, and the fixed-wing aircraft re-return uh, back to their bases outside of Iran. The helicopters now take off and fly vicinity of Tehran, but you only have a limited period of darkness, so the helicopters have got to find a place to land, a hide site, and hide for the entire next day. And so there are six big helicopters and almost 100 commandos are hiding. And then that late afternoon, trucks would come out of the city, procured by agents, drive the commandos into the embassy, conduct a hostage rescue raid, which was expected to involve a firefight. Then the plan was to secure the hostages in the raid force, move across the street to a soccer stadium, secure that, fly the helicopters in, pick up the, the hostages and the raid force, and fly out. But they couldn't get out of Iran because they didn't have enough fuel. So mm -hmm. another company of rangers had to fly in, seize another airfield, land the helicopters, land the fixed-wing aircraft, take the hostages out, and then everybody comes out. Pretty easy, right? Well, as we know, historically, it failed. And it failed for some mechanical reasons, but also for some failures in communication. But the interesting part of the story on risk is as he was going up to the time when he was gonna make a decision on the operation, two gentlemen were brought to see the president. Major General James Vaught, a Korean Vietnam veteran, strong-willed, impressive officer, and then a colonel named Charlie Beckwith, the founder of Delta Force. And he was sort of a big, bluff, confident guy. They're brought into the president, they're asked to outline the plan, which they do. And then he asks them, well, what's the probability of success? And they respond, 85%. Well, if you take apart the operation, as I described it, there were 10 phases to the operation. The first two happened simultaneously, the aircraft, two types of aircraft going in. And then every other phase as they go from the transload site to the next site. And every piece of the operation is essential, meaning each phase is dependent upon the success of all the phases before it. And so it's pretty challenging. Now you say, well, what's the probability of each phase being successful? And we'll, we'll subjectively say about 90%. And that's good a guess as any. So the probability of the operation succeeding is 90%, right? No, not even close. Because if 10 phases... It's actually 0.9 times 0.9 times 0.9 times 0.9, 10 times, which comes out to just under 35%. Now imagine President Carter sitting there and he has these two impressive army officers come in and he says, what's the probability of success? And they go, well, boss, just shy of 35%. What's the chances he would approve it? And the answer is zero. But you say, well, they were irresponsible or they were wrong. No, they were human. They went in and they believed it was 85%. They had planned it. They wanted to do the operation. It was Americans they were going to rescue. They had all of the motivations to want this thing to succeed, so they wanted to believe. And then you put yourself in President Carter's position. You say, well, he should have been skeptic in charge. You know, convince me. But, you know, he wants to rescue American citizens. He knows there's a huge political risk if they can't get this operation to go. So he's obviously spring-loaded to want to believe. And so they, they approve the operation and it fails. So, so where's the problem here? The problem is this is how we deal with risk a lot. Communication is tough. 
If I go to you and say something is high risk, in my mind, I know what that means. In your mind, it may mean something completely different. And so how we deal with risk, how we process it, how we communicate it, how we act on it is often far more complex than the mathematical parts of it. Stan, that was great. And now I think I really appreciate all the much more why you've got the book subtitled A User's Guide. Um, and as you spell out in the book, that's one of uh, more than a dozen different factors that the user needs to be guided by. With that said, I'm going to toss the baton in just a second to Anne, but I need to speak to you, our listeners, and remind you that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, and we are in active conversation with retired four-star Army General Stanley McChrystal, and we're talking about his new book, Risk, A User's Guide. Anne, over to you. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. And Stan, again, such an honor and a pleasure to have you back on the show. Um, I'm wondering, since we are so human, what advice would you have just simply in detecting risk, knowing risk when we see it? So just thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I think we are sort of uh, pre uh determined to go out and look for the risk that is coming over the hill, around the corner, or going to appear. External things are going to do us problems. They did a survey a few years ago of a bunch of CEOs, and they asked them, what are the biggest risks to your corporation? And they all listed external events. And then they looked at why corporations fail, and almost invariably, it is something internal. So what I would tell organizations is to start with our conclusion to the book is the greatest risk to us is us. Yeah. And so in, instead of spending a lot of time trying to, to see or predict things, we're not very good at seeing or predicting. I would look inside my organization and I would say, okay, where are we weak? Where don't we communicate? Where might we have a weak narrative that, that binds us? Where do we lack diversity and therefore have blind spots? in our organization. When does inertia stop us from acting? What are the either processes or just cultural habits? How do we fail to adapt? Are we good at adapting when conditions change? All of those things. So all of these factors, the beauty of it is we have control over them. We can do something about them. You know, if you think about a disease that comes at you, you can't do anything about the disease till it touches your body. But you can, you can get your body in better health. You can do all the things that make you healthier that give you a much better shot. And that's essentially what we're arguing. Yeah, so, so good. I'm wondering if you can give an illustration of a, you know, without naming names, of course, but perhaps a, a company that did that internal deep dive and was able to better position itself. Yeah, I, I was on the board of a company a few years ago, and they took a real hard look at why they had had some problems before. So instead of, they were obviously thinking about problems that could come again, and they were weather-related problems, and uh, they had caused a real upset in the organization. It was an airline. Um, they had caused them a lot of problems in the years before. So that what the organization did, it looked at its own processes. 
how capable are we of responding if in fact weather upsets us and we have to reposition aircraft, reposition crews, if we've got to recover from an upset? How robust are our information technology systems? How about our narrative? What do our people believe about ourselves? So how do we act? Their, their mantra was be America's favorite airline. And so they asked every employee to take actions through that lens, do whatever it takes so that in the mind of our customers, we are their favorite airline. And so they, they looked at some of these things, which were just inside internal operations. Some were identifying the organization and, and deeply cultural. And then the leadership part, who's responsible and who provides the inspiration. And what they did is they became a better organization for every subsequent threat that, that emerged. Yeah, I, I appreciate that example. And Mike, um, I'm reminded of a talk I just uh, heard. Our own Dean, Erica James, spoke with uh, some executives who are participating in our advanced management program. And she talked about the difference between crisis management and crisis leadership. And I'm hearing it in your response, the management side to react to and respond to the, um, the matter at hand, the crisis at hand. But the leadership side is to be proactive and to learn, look forward and to learn from that crisis. So, you know, the expression of not letting a good crisis go to, go to waste. And I'm hearing that in your, in your response as well. Mike, let me hand hand back to you to pick up the conversation. Well, thank you, Annette. And Stan, I'm, I'm going to reiterate the phrase that has really stuck with me as I heard it from you. The greatest risk to us is us. And I think all of us have had some experience in trying to look more introspectively inside ourselves. Good coaching feedback is part of that. But also to get the organization to look for flaws or kind of hidden risks within and one of the, I think, better known tactics is to assign several people in a room, if you're sitting with your top team, to play the role of the enemy, uh, to identify the weaknesses and so on. So in addition to that, what other tactics come to mind so that if the greatest risk is us, um, we got to see us better? And what what are the tactics that would help you and help us and, and listeners become better at looking within and not just without. I'll throw a couple of uh, the factors, but then also a couple of techniques. One is look at your structure. You know, we build structures to give our stability, to give clarity of responsibility, mm -hmm. to establish processes where information flows and things like that. Often those structures end up being a two-edged sword. What mm -hmm. they do is they end up uh, inhibiting communication or causing people to identify in other parts of it. So I think we've got to understand that in every strength like structure, there lies inherent uh, weaknesses. The same with technology. Think of the technologies we buy. For example, how many times have you called a company and you get the automated answering machine and it says, if you want this, hit one, if you want this, hit two. And invariably, they never have a number for exactly what your problem is. And all you really want is to talk to somebody and give them your problem. How many times did you hang up and say, I'm going to take my business elsewhere? Well, the company often never knows that. They saved a ton of money with the automated system and they save money, more money every day. So it is a, a way to be efficient, but in fact, it can undercut exactly what they're trying to do. 
And so technology often carries both sides. And we, when we're not sensitive to that, we weaken ourselves. And, and it gives vulnerabilities like your technology can break, it can be hacked, and you, know, you can lack some of the skills that you need. Some of the specific techniques that you can do, we, we cover one in the book called a pre-mortem. And in the military, it's very effective. And what you do is you plan an operation, you get it all ready, <clears throat> you've typically rehearsed it, and then you get key people in the room and you say, all right, here's the assumption, the operation failed. We are now discussing it after the fact. Tell me how it failed. And you got to start with young people because if you start with the senior people, they'll dominate the room and the young people won't say anything. But typically, if, if you create the right environment, a young person will go, you know, we didn't have enough of this resource there. We didn't have enough money with people. And so we could never do this part of the operation. That was never going to succeed. And you'll typically go, well, who knew that? And the, the young person go, well, I assumed y'all knew that. Uh, there was a time in Iraq when there was a big operation planned by 18th Airborne Corps, and they did a pre-mortem before the operation. And this young guy goes, this young captain goes, I just want to make sure you all understand that this plan depends upon my drivers, truck drivers, driving 18 hours a day for seven days straight. He goes, that's not safe. And of course, nobody knew that but him. But the reality was by, by being able to identify weaknesses that otherwise wouldn't come out, the pre-mortem can be magic in helping you fix if you're willing to act. Uh, another thing, of course, is the after-action review after an operation, particularly when you succeed, you do a very focused after-action because, you know, the reality is sometimes you succeed just because you are lucky. <laughs> You know, there's a famous story from one of my favorite plays, Bernard Shaw's Arms and the Man. He tells a story of this guy leads a cavalry charge and becomes a big hero. Prince Sergio is his name. And the cavalry charge is glorious. But they get a guy from the other side who's a mercenary against him. And he comes in, he says, I watched the cavalry charge. The only reason you're alive is we forgot to bring our ammunition. If we brought our ammunition, you'd all be dead. But it takes a real thing like an after-action review to go, you know, this plane almost crashed. We need to prevent it next time. Yeah. Stanner reminds me of a, fam a famous quote. You know it. Napoleon used to say, I want great generals on the battlefield who are great at the technical aspects of military assault, and I want them to be lucky. Okay, good. Well, I, Stan, I really appreciate your starting to walk through some of the uh, risk factors, and you've named structure, you talked about communication, maybe just a word about narrative, the story we tell ourselves, and how that can work against us. Yeah, there's, there's a great story from 1957, when Vice President Nixon goes to Ghana for Independence Day. And he's walking around after talking to people, and he goes to a, a black man, and he says, well, so how's it feel to be free? And the guy goes, I wouldn't know. I'm from Alabama. And if you think about it, the American narrative has always been about freedom and rights and equality. But particularly in 1957 and still imperfectly today, that was more aspirational than reality for a significant part of our society. And so we had a narrative, but that narrative wasn't what we actually did. What we had was a say-do gap. And in that say-do gap, cynicism grows. 
The story we tell longest in the book is about Project Maven and Google. Many of, us, many of us remember when Google first coined the term, don't be evil. And we sort of smiled and we said, what does that mean? Well, it grew to mean inside uh, Google an awful lot to a lot of employees because it was a, a value-based statement. It says, we won't do things we think are evil. And in reality, when they started working Project Maven with the US government, many of the employees mm -hmm. saw that as evil. And so there was a disconnect. And there's great danger in disconnects. Our guest this hour is retired four-star Army General Stanley McChrystal, now a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and the co-founder of the McChrystal Group, uh, a leadership consulting firm. And we're talking about his newest book called Risk, A User's Guide. Stan, to plunge right back into that, uh, I think it's chapter 12, of your book has a great title, very intriguing. It took me to that chapter pretty quickly. Leadership colon, the indispensable factors. So help us understand why indispensable is the word you use there. Absolutely. I think all of us have been in good organizations that were poorly led. And think how often you were sort of in the back rank or the back row or a, a side office and your frustration grew because you knew the talent was there you knew maybe the product was there, you knew all of the things were in line, except for some reason they couldn't be pulled together. And that's what leaders do. In the book, we tell the story of General Edward Braddock, who in the French and Indian War, leaves from a place right near my house now, where I live in Alexandria, Virginia, and takes an army to try to capture Fort Duquesne, a French fort at the site of modern day Pittsburgh. Now, General Braddock has got two regiments of regular British Redcoats infantry, and he thinks that their training and their discipline will be decisive because that's his experience from the battlefields of Europe. That's what works well. So he's got a certain amount of arrogance, a certain amount of closed mindedness, and he leads his force forward. And it's a very difficult, logistical, physical thing to get there. And when they get right near Fort Duquesne, they are attacked by a French and Indian force that uses irregular tactics, not a fancy uh, ambush, but just sort of a, what we would call a meeting engagement. But they very flexibly start to maneuver on the British and they, they just rout his force. And it's a huge military tragedy. General Braddock's shortcoming was that he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't learn. Mm. And he had people in his force to include young George Washington as an aide, he had young Daniel Boone as a wagon driver. He had other members who had been in militias and other situations who all warned him that it's different here. This is a different kind of war, a different kind of foe, but he was unable to bring their voices and their wisdom together and come up with a, a good outcome. How often do we see leaders with a preconceived idea not leverage the entire force and pay for it? Yep. Yep. So, uh, Stan, let's stay on that with uh, one more round on this. If you are working with a, a rising army officer or one of the people that you've worked with in the private sector now, knowing what you've just said is it's not universal, but it is commonly seen. What advice would you have for somebody to get over that particular barrier to their effectiveness? Yeah, I think the first thing is people ask me the most important trait and I say self-discipline. And what I mean by that is sometimes that self-discipline is to listen. 
Sometimes that self-discipline is to bring in a diversity of perspectives, things that you don't already know or have internal to you. Sometimes it is to reach out and connect people in your organization that are going to operate. At the end of the day, a leader doesn't do anything themselves. They very rarely win the battlefield or sell the product. What they do is they enable the organization to do that. So what I tell people at the heart of it, a, a leader is a connector, a communicator. Mm. You know, he, they orchestrate an environment in which the, oper- the organization operates effectively. And so if the leader thinks of that as their role, then they focus on making their people effective as opposed to thinking that they are the great decision maker or the great actor. So, Stan, a quick follow-up question, then we're going to go to Anne on this. Let's put you back in Afghanistan. You've got a room filled with your senior commanders. You've worked out a plan. You know it better than they do. You know, in an overarching way, uh, uh, the full setting. And how do you actually, very in a very personal way, I don't know, pinch yourself or tell yourself privately, don't speak up, let them speak first, let's hear what they have to say. So just bring that to life. How, how do you ensure that you do actively listen when on the face of it, you know more than the people in the room? Yeah, Mike, it's a great one because you have to remind yourself constantly. Sometimes you you set up meetings and you have some of your team set it up so that as you come in, you you are already set up that you are going to listen to a briefing or listen to a case being made by someone. And so you have to teach yourself not only to, to sit and not speak, but also don't send the body language that you've already made some kind of decision. Hmm. I don't know how often you, you brief somebody senior who is clearly impatient or they're clearly just waiting to say something or they're clearly distracted on something else. You, you stop the communication even though you may go through the, the ritual of pretending to listen or if you don't look at the slides or what, whatever thing they're using. It, it goes back to what I say about the self-discipline. We all know you have to do it, but you have to force yourself to do it as a matter of practice. Yep. By the way, an illustration that Ann and I and our third guest or our third associate have often referenced on prior shows, uh, prior shows was a moment in American history, which Stan, I know you know well, and that is the Union commander at Gettysburg, George Meade, on the evening before what became Pickett's Charge, began by asking all of his senior people what they would do the next day. And he was the last to speak up. He did have some ideas, but to hear others' ideas, he made certain he began with the most junior person in the room, you know this, and, and worked up. So... I'm really just reinforcing what you've said. Uh, there are a lot of ways to become an active listener, and one of those or a couple of those captured what you said. And over to you. Hey, thank you, Mike. So we've been talking about um, General Braddock and his inability to listen. He also had some assumptions that proved to be not well-founded. And that that leads me to the question of bias and our unconscious assumptions. So I'm I'm just wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about how we guard against bias. And I think in your book, you have a nice example of President Johnson in 1964. There is a a bias uh, for several things. 
One, there is a bias to think that which has been before will continue to be, that things will continue in the same direction as it goes there. There is a bias against uh, change, uh, moving things like that. The, the thing about bias is you don't do away with them. You have them. You are not going to step away from your biases. What happens is you have to be aware of them. And so as you have these biases, what you've got to do is you've got to bring other voices into the room. You've got to find ways to counterweight or to discount the biases that bring you in or that you bring in. When President Johnson in 1964, he had a lot on his mind. And when you think about Vietnam, he did not want to fight a war in Vietnam. He wanted to do the great society. But at the same time, he, he did not want to endanger himself politically. So if he backed away from the war, he thought that he could uh, put himself vulnerable. So there's a you find a natural bias to do something or not. And so you've got to find ways to pull yourself away or account for your biases and uh, counterweight them. And maybe just a t another tactic to help help you do that. And we've you know, we've talked about a number having the pre-mortem, of course, the AAR having the the uh, the more junior and the younger people speak any other tactics for just guarding against um, our own biases well there are a number of things like at how you ask questions if you walk into a room and you're a senior leader and you say well how's our strategy working well, every person in that room knows it's your strategy. You either came up with it or you approved it. And so they are spring-loaded to say, it is going great, oh, great leader. Yeah. I had to learn as I got senior not to ask that question. I had to go in and say, and one of the ones I developed was, if I told you you couldn't go home from Afghanistan until we win, what would you do differently? Mm -hmm. And, and what that did is it didn't allow them to say yes, no, fine, or anything like that. It had to be more thought out. And it also gave them an open-ended ability to describe a different way of doing things. And I found I had to set up questions that, that set that. And then, of course, the other thing you have to do is you have to listen. If you ask a very brilliant question and then start looking over their shoulder like you're looking at somebody else acting impatient, you know, you've just ruined it. So you've got to lock eyes, and this takes discipline for busy senior leaders. Lock eyes on the people. Tell me what you're thinking. Obviously be engaged, but it can be invaluable because you'll get feedback. You just, it will take your biases and it will assault them. Mm -hmm. And it, it will uh, give them an up. It will pressure test your biases to see if they are actually wrong and dangerous. So that might put you on the spot a little bit here, Stan, but was there a moment when you had that happen with one of your um, one of your comrades? Oh, yeah. Too many times. Too many when times. People, yeah. When, when <laughs> you would come up with an idea of doing something and you would say, OK, this is what I think the situation is and this is what I think we've got to do about it. And the beauty in the special operations world is people are more mature They've been around a lot and they're much less impressed with rank because you, you tend to know each other. And so people would look you right in the eye and say, first, your boss, your analysis of the situation is wrong. Yeah. And then they then they'd go, not only is your it wrong, therefore, what you're proposing we do does not make sense. And yeah. we would get in some pretty spirited arguments 
mm-hmm. about whether we should do something or not do something because they were willing to, to assault it. One of the techniques I learned that worked very well for me was make sure I expose my logic to them. So instead mm-hmm. of just saying, I think this, I'd say, I called it thinking out loud. I would say what I thought and why I thought that. And that yeah. way they could correct mm-hmm. any inconsistencies or inaccuracies in, in what I was using as my logic train before they told me I was stupid. That's great, Stan. And you're reminding me of the importance of having uh, what we call, you know, difficult conversations and giving honest, honest feedback that others can also hear. Yeah, that's a great, wonderful. Mike. (laughs) Ann and Stan, I'm going to briefly remind everybody that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM. We're right there at 132 on the channels. I'm Mike Yusin. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And of course, we're talking with retired four-star general Stanley McChrystal about his new book, Risk, A User's Guide. And Stan, as we begin to uh, come towards the conclusion of our show, I've got a slightly odd question, and that is one of the ways you communicate in this book and in your earlier books is to draw examples from business. Take Google, take, well, a bunch of companies that you name in the book, but also from history. So Edward Braddock and George Washington and Pearl Harbor. You've got a long passage on Pearl Harbor. And help us understand, and Anna and I, by the way, are in the same club because we do the same thing, how you help translate ideas and experiences and lessons from one area that can be very different from another area, whether it's armed forces going to business or the other way around. What are some of the methods that you use to do that? I I think stories and examples become the most powerful, but they have to be things that you can make approachable to people. When we talk about adaptability in the book, we use a 20-year-old engineering student from the University of Oregon. And in 1968, this young man wearing two different color shoes is competing at the Olympics in Mexico City. And he runs to the high bar and he throws himself over backwards. And one reporter describes it, says the crowd was laughing so hard they didn't realize he just won and set an Olympic record. And we look at Dick Fosbury, and that became the famous Fosbury flop, which now almost every high jumper uses. And you say, well, okay, he was a smart guy, clever guy, came up with a new way to jump over. Good for him. Well, actually, it's much more subtle than that. He adapted. He changed the way he high jumped to get a better outcome. But he did it for two reasons. First, in the early years of high jumping, when you jumped over the high jump on the other side where you landed was first, it was just dirt. And then they put sand and then they put small pieces of rubber later And if you had gone over backwards and landed on the back of your neck like a Fosbury flop does, you'd broke your neck. (laughs) So you couldn't do that. But by 1968, conditions had changed. They now had these big, thick crash pads. So now conditions allowed adaptation to a different approach. But Dick Fosbury brought the other crucial part. He had the willingness to adapt. He'd been jumping other ways for years, so the safe thing would have been to do what everybody else is doing and what he'd learned to do. But instead, he decides to do something completely different because he can and because he will. So 
when we talk about adaptability, sometimes I try to translate for leaders. You first have to understand the conditions. Have the conditions changed? Can you do something different now? It's a different approach. And technology is allowing a lot of different approaches to a lot of different things now. And are you willing to? Can you let go of the side of the pool to swim? Great. Stan, I'm going to ask about one final topic, throw it back to Anne, and then the three of us are going to do an after-action review. And I know, Stan, you've been doing that through your entire professional life. Uh, and, of course, it's part of our program every, every time we're on the air. You reference what it means to be risk fit. I really like the metaphor. We, we all want to be fit. But what does it mean to be risk fit? Yeah, it's a great question. In special operations, what we used to do was come up with these wonderful plans to do a complicated operation. And if you've seen them on the movies, everything goes perfectly and they swing from here and throw hand grenades between their legs. And, and it's very clever. In the real world, you, you develop contingency plans for everything that can go wrong and you rehearse those. And then when you do the operation, none of those things ever go wrong. Something different goes wrong that you never thought of. And so in the midst, you've got to figure it out. But what you've done in the process is you developed the ability to deal with the unexpected and with problems. So what we were really trying to do in our force and the idea of becoming risk fit is becoming resilient against the onslaught of a threat that just suddenly comes so you don't get knocked off your feet, but also you become the kind of entity that can adapt very rapidly can take a new direction, apply a new approach, and you have the confidence and the capabilities, we might say physical capabilities, but this is an organizational fitness, the ability to respond quickly. I would argue that most threats, crises, whether it's a pandemic or a power outage or a financial crisis that hit a big company, about 80% of what you do is the same regardless of whether something upsets your business, it causes interruptions, it causes you to do differently. You communicate, you develop a narrative, you have to take actions. That's all the same. There's only about 20% that's unique to whatever that particular crisis is. And so if you get fit, you, you're ready to do that last 20% much better. Stan, my editorial addition to that is to learn how to be effective at managing risk, we got to do it. We learn best from it. So taking a risk, always risky by definition, lots of downside, no better way to master it than to get into it and learn from it. And why don't we go for maybe two more minutes and then we're going to wrap up with okay. AAR. Over to All right, you. great, Mike. Well, I appreciate that you make that point. At some point, you've got to, you have to act. <laughs> and I know that that comes up in Stan's book as well. Maybe just for my last uh, question here, Stan, you also talk about the importance of timing. And I've been just musing about the difference between Kronos and Kairos. In other words, the clock time and the right time. So could you just speak to that? Absolutely. As we describe in the book, you know, when you do something can matter more than how well you do it. Yeah. I grew up loving baseball. If you swing too early or swing too late, it doesn't matter if your swing is good, yeah. but you have a very limited time. So timing is of the essence. In the book, we tell the story of a Formula One race 
where in fact the Ferrari team, what they do is they develop this unorthodox strategy to take three pit stops during the race as opposed to two. And you say, now, wait a minute, each pit stop takes time. How in the world would stopping three times be faster than stopping twice? Think about family trips when you put everybody in, you say, well, I'm not stopping. Yeah. Well, what they found was by stopping three times, they could put less fuel in the car and it would be lighter and travel faster. Mm. And because they got off cycle with the other cars, they stopped at a different time. When they were on the track, they weren't in a tight mass with other cars and therefore they could go faster. So their entire time ended up being cumulatively faster and they won the race, even though they took that additional stop. It's, it's understanding the relationship of time and timing to the mm -hmm. outcome. We also talk about Hurricane Katrina, where 56 hours before the hurricane hit landfall, it was clear it was going to hit right at New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Leaders waited until, until it was 19 hours before mm -hmm. landfall hit that they ordered the evacuation. What that meant was, even though the plan was still good, the bus drivers weren't available. The bus drivers had left oh. and they couldn't execute the plan anymore. There was nothing wrong with the plan, but it wasn't executable because they got the timing wrong. Yeah. Yep. Great. Super. So great. All right, Stan and Anne, let's encourage our listeners to join in with us. So you're going to all join in silently, but would you please be thinking of something that Stan has said or referenced along the way that you'd really like to hang on to or maybe pass on to a friend uh, in discussion later on. For that purpose, Dan and I and Anne are also going to try it at our end. Anne, let's begin with you, and then I'm going to jump in, and then Stan, we're going to give you the final word in our after-action review here. Uh, well, Mike, I might I might steal one of yours here when I say this, but I do very much appreciate Stan's comment about the greatest threat. You know, the enemy is us. You know, we are our greatest threat in in detecting, assessing, and responding, and, and moreover, learning from risk. Great. I've got four very quick ones. I just jotted down here on a piece of paper. The first picks up on what Ann just said. The greatest risk to us is ourselves, and therefore, we need pre-mortems. Uh, we need four or five other column devices that help us recognize we've got to come to terms with ourselves before we can do that with anybody else. Number two, Stan has stressed the power of a personal narrative, who you are, what you stand for, the purpose, really important because that, if anything, captures the minds of so many people. And it gets back to his uh, fundamental point of one of his chapters. Uh, ultimately, it's about taking these ideas in a leadership regard or a leadership uh, commitment and bringing them to life. And that brings me to the, um, well, the third point, I'm not going to go to four right now, but the third point, which is we have to close the saying and doing gap. It is amazing how yawning that gap is and <laughs> in our power to close it. Stan, over to you. And if we have time, we'll, we'll make one more cycle through this, Anne, so be ready. But Stan, over right. to you. So the thing I think I learned most from the book was risk is opportunity. Risk often or crisis upsets the status quo. It's like breaking in a pool game after the break and the balls have spread around. Suddenly you've got opportunities you didn't have a minute before. And often we are so worried about surviving during a crisis that we don't think about 
some of the status quo, maybe the inertia or uh, has been upset or uncovered, and we can now do things we couldn't do. All right. A final word, Anne, from you, then from me, and then from Stan. What, one more additional thought for the AAR. All right. I would just uh, underscore the importance of time and timing. You may have the perfect game plan, but if you are not on the mark on the executing that at the right time, that game plan is of no use to you. Great illustration, Anne, just to steal a little bit of your um, sort of example or a point there. Abraham Lincoln delayed the issue of the Emancipation Proclamation to a point after um, uh, at least a, a modest victory or a, a, vict a, a kind of victory for the uh, U.S. Army at the time at, um, at Antietam. He delayed the proclamation until it looked like the U.S. was ready to accept it. Timing is everything. Stan, I'm just going to reference in my add-on point here the power of body language and how essential it is to communicate effectively. Stan, over to you for a final thought. Yeah, we're not victims. You know, we're not punching bags or pinatas that threats and risks pummel us. We've got the opportunity to be stronger and do something. And that's how we have to think about it. Great. So, Stan, thank you for joining us now for the third time. Yes, we, thank uh, you, Stan. Yeah, we, we, we talked a couple of years ago about your book, Team of Teams. And just to make it personal, I've told so many people about that book because life, if you're more than a couple of people in an enterprise, it's not only your team, but the many teams that you've got to work with. So yeah. anyway, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your willingness to join the show. I want to thank everybody for joining us as well. If you've got a question about the program today, you know how to reach us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter. Uh, once again, I want to thank our guest, Stan. Just, uh, Stan, thank you so much uh, yet again. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, and, Well, great to have you. I uh, want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Mike Usain, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 